police officer was following a car that was driving very erratically. He pulled it over, he walked up to the window, he was very surprised to see a pastor from one of the local churches. He noticed a flask on the front seat of the car, and the officer said, Reverend, what's in the bottle? The pastor proudly said, water. The officer said, Reverend, let me see that flask. The pastor reluctantly handed it to the officer who opened it, smelled it, and said, Reverend, this is not water. This is wine. The pastor looked astonished and said, praise the Lord, he's done it again. I don't, I don't usually start sermons with jokes, I leave that to Rick. Now you see why. I, I ran across it this week and I couldn't avoid it. They say telling jokes is really all about the timing and well maybe that's the better connection than this story to our text this morning. It's a bad joke, I know. But good jokes have to do with good timing. Now, our story, though, is all about timing. The timing is all wrong in this story. We show up. We don't know what's going on. We show up in the middle of a wedding feast. Whose wedding? We don't know. Friends of Jesus. What we do know is that in ancient Jewish culture, they had big weddings. Be thankful, those of you whose children I've married recently Our weddings are pretty tame compared to theirs. They didn't have honeymoons. They had week-long wedding feasts, day after day of partying. When we show up in the story, it's about the middle. It's the third day of the wedding feast. They have at least three, four more days left. They're not even halfway there, and they've already run out of wine. What horrible timing. Now, I tell all the couples I marry that when something goes wrong in their wedding, and it will, it always does, but I promise them that no matter what will go wrong, at the end of it, we will still achieve our goal, and they will be married. My promise to them. And that sort of goes over with them about as good as a bad joke goes over, because, yeah, they'll still be married, but they'll also be a little embarrassed, depending on what may happen. If that crazy drunk uncle does show out at the reception or the groomsman plays the prank that they've been threatening or a bridesmaid passes out or an ex interrupts the ceremony or the ring bearer loses the ring, they may still get married, but can they live through the embarrassment? For Jesus' friends, that's what's at stake. They are on the verge of great embarrassment. Wedding parties were the social events of their town. And this is a small town, Cana, a town that we barely know anything about outside of the book of John. So it's going to get out what happened at this wedding. The family ran out of wine, a social faux pas that would be impossible to overcome. And so Jesus' mom runs to her son. She knows who he is and what he can do, and alerts him about what is about to happen to their friends. The wine is out. The party is about to end prematurely. Do something, Jesus, she says. And Jesus' response, woman, what concern is that to me and you? My hour has not yet come. It's the wrong time. Now, I called this sermon Pub Theology, For a couple of reasons. The first is to make another bad joke. It's about drinking wine and we're doing theology, so we'll call it pub theology. Why not, right? 
Another excuse is to mention the Bible study event. We had it back in uh, October, the end of October, Pub Theology at 804 Main. And we're going to do it again. I've been working uh, uh, with uh, Nick to kind of plan a date. And we're looking at January 28th at 7 p.m., in fact, for the next Pub Theology event. It's a little commercial in the middle of the sermon. But the main reason why is because, well, what we do at Pub Theology is we sit around and it's kind of a fun environment. But we ask some deep questions about our faith. It's questions that, that we may not ask in church, but we can ask there. And this text, well, this is a story that for me, the more I think about it, the more questions I have, deep questions. Like, like first off, why does Jesus talk to his mother the way he does? It's very unexpected. Kids, I recommend not following Jesus' example in this point. Don't call your mother woman. Spouses, I recommend the same to you. Don't call your wife woman either. But Jesus did. Now, I don't think Jesus is being rude, though. I think he's somewhat distancing himself from her, from the problem at hand. It's not our problem, he's saying. It's theirs. We, we won't be embarrassed. They will. Because it's not my time. This is not how this is supposed to go, woman. And this is too surprising that he would answer in this way, who cares, Jesus, if it's your time or not? The, in, the need is here. Can't you just do something? You can. Why won't you? And that, for me, leads to many other hard questions. In a world of so much need, need much greater than wine supplies running out, we want to ask, along with Jesus' mother, can't you do something, Jesus? Sometimes divine inaction is pretty hard to swallow. Maybe, maybe you're stuck on the question of plausibility. Frankly, it's hard to imagine wine being, water being turned into wine. Seems more appropriate for a joke's punchline than for a story of our faith. All miracle stories leave us questioning, how is this possible? Of course, for someone like me who grew up in what in the South we call a teetotaling house. Anybody know what teetotalers are? People who stay teetotally away from all alcohol whatsoever. So for us, the real question was why Jesus would have anything to do with wine in the first place. The Son of God in such a place as this, this is no place for holiness. And not just that, but six jars. Did you catch it in the story? Six Jars, each jar holding around 20 to 30 gallons. That's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot. Good Christians don't drink wine, especially not this much wine, right? Jesus, why is this your first public sign? Frankly, nothing in this story really seems like Jesus. And this is his first sign, his first miracle, we're told. Nothing seems like the Jesus, at least the Jesus we've made him into. Now, Soren Kierkegaard, the prominent Dutch theologian of the 19th century, long dead from now, but he said of this story, whereas, in little, little old-timey language, whereas Christ turned water into wine, the church has succeeded in doing something even more difficult. It has turned wine into water. Did you catch that? Wine into water. Sometimes we do that in church. We take the fun out of things. 
And maybe that's what this story is partially about. Maybe this story raises so much question because we good Christians aren't used to seeing Jesus, let alone God doing anything like this, having anything to do with a party. There's one little detail we kind of skipped over when looking at the story. These six jars, they're not just jars sitting around. They are jars used for Jewish purification rites. They are holy jars. Jars that were part of old religious customs of the people. And these old religious jars are sitting there empty. Now, we're in the middle of what the church calls the season of epiphany, the, the crowns, the the, the uh, baptism behind us reminds us of the stories we've read thus far of the wise men seeing the star and seeing Jesus there with Mary and Joseph, of the, of the dove coming down, the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus in his baptism. It's a season where we look, where we look for Jesus, for God in unexpected places, like water, like wine, like wise men coming from the east. And we need these reminders because too often, I think, we look at our religious customs and our symbols and they seem empty to us. And we're unable to see God right in our midst. And so in the story, John kicks off his gospel about Jesus with this story of Jesus taking these empty jars, these empty symbols of their faith, and he fills them with something new and surprising. The best wine, not just for this party, but that anyone had ever drunk. Sometimes drinking wine, I'm told, can cloud your vision. But sometimes drinking good wine makes your eyes wide open. And you see Jesus as the one who invites us into a party of God's abundant love. Sometimes those old jars of our faith need to be filled with something new and surprising. Now, Marty shared with us a prayer from Dr. Martin Luther King. Today is the Sunday before Martin Luther King Day. And it seems a, a seemingly jarring contrast, really, to have a text about a story, a, a story about a party, when we think about Dr. King's life, a life that ended so tragically, so hatefully. King's life mission was hard, and he often paid the price for it. Even before he was killed, his home was bombed, he was in prison, his family life was strained by long travel and by threats, he was beaten, he was cursed and hated by the very people sometimes that he was seeking to help. And yet he had a joy that could not be taken away because it was a joy, a, a faith that was rooted deep in his calling by God. He was living his life sold out to God's mission for his life. And that, is, that translates into his life, not just to dedication, but a dedication of joy that he could face anything that may happen. Two months before he was assassinated, he spoke at his home church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And that Sunday as he preached, he said prophetically, even every now and then, he said, I think about my own death and I think about my own funeral. And I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Every now and then I ask myself what it, what it is that I would once said at my funeral. And I leave the word to you this morning. This is what I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for someone to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want it said that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to feed the hungry. 
And I want you to be able to say that day that I tried in my life to clothe those who were naked. And I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. And indeed, it was said of him as he wanted it to be said. Because living your life for others as he showed us, that's true joy. And true joyful religion isn't one focused on rituals of purification, of making yourself look pure and holy on the outside, but one that is filled with joy that pours out for others. I think that's why Jesus chose a wedding to do this sign, a party where he gave of himself so that others could experience joy. The steward in the gospel, the the guy who's organizing things, he doesn't know where this wine came from. He didn't order it. Where was it? But what surprised him most was not where it came from, but that they would save the best wine for last. We remember that this story happened on the third day, a throw ahead to the resurrection of Christ. And we remember that that's how it is with the love of God. Even when life is hard, even when you feel like you don't have reason to celebrate, even when you think you cannot go on anymore, even when you're someone like Dr. King pouring yourself out in a fight for justice and you are killed by the very people you are hoping to save, there is still joy, abundant joy, always ready, always waiting to show up. For we serve a God that saves the best for last who always has another jar of the world's finest wine, another gift of grace waiting to be served. And nothing we could do, nothing anyone could do or say can stop the party of God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. 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 Let us come now to the Lord's table. We're going to sing number 386. We come as guests invited, for indeed we are all invited into God's kingdom of grace and love. Let us sing. Thank you. 